For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet Lisa Klein, the filmmaker behind The S Word, a documentary about the conversation she says America is not having about suicide. Some tips for coping with the emotional challenges of life. And I'll talk with David Cooley, a familiar voice from Fresh Air, about his book on television, From I Love Lucy to The Walking Dead. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Solitude, shame, and stigma are three words that are referred to often in the new documentary The S Word because it's a film about suicide. But a more important word is survival. The film focuses on stories of people who confronted their suicidal urges and may have made attempts, but then found reasons to choose life over death. The S Word is screening next week in Tucson, and I talked with filmmaker Lisa Klein. I started by asking Klein about one of her film's central subjects, photographer Desiree Stage. Stage is a suicide attempt survivor who now travels the country to document the stories and messages of hope from other survivors and to take riveting portraits that celebrate their diverse identities. In many ways, Desiree's project is what the S-word is all about, as Lisa Klein is quick to acknowledge. I went into it from a place of loss. And what I found as I was researching this was sort of this, this rising group of people who had attempted suicide and survived. So early in my research, I came across what Desiree was doing, and immediately I got in touch with her, and we met, and we were talking about what we were doing. And it wasn't until probably a year in or so um, where we thought, you know what, we're going to use this as a framing device. I mean, I was talking to people who had lost people to suicide. I was talking about two attempt survivors, and I realized that she also was talking to attempt survivors and taking these amazing photos, and we knew that we wanted her to be part of the film. Lisa, for people who haven't seen them, how would you describe what it's like to look at a gallery of Desiree's photographs? Wow, that is a great question. That's the first time I've ever been asked that question. I think when you go and you're looking, not only are you looking, they're also, they have headphones so you can listen to the story. And for for many people, it could be the first time that they're actually looking at these photographs. They're looking at me and they're talking to me and it's up to me to look back and to absorb and to listen, to really listen to what's going on with them. And I think that experience is humanizing. And that's exactly, again, another parallel with the film, because, you know, it's one thing to hear the statistics on suicide, but to see these faces and to see these people who had been on that edge and are here to tell their story, we're putting a human face on it. One thing that seems to be very common among the people that are featured in the film is that they had a trauma when they were younger that made them look at life differently. After 
your own experience in life with your brother and then doing the film, do you find a common ground among these people that you weren't aware of before? It really isn't just about mental illness when you're talking about something like suicide and you picked up on that with, with trauma. It's a building block. How is the trauma dealt with? Because it's one thing to have the trauma, then what are your coping skills? And when you're really young, your coping skills are not very well developed yet. But I think it's finding that connection. So for me, both my father and my brother died by suicide when I was in college. And being able to talk about it was not a skill that I had then. And I think that that is common because when somebody decides to tell their story, you know, they're building a community, they're building a trust, all of that. But it isn't always easy because if the person who they're talking to, if there's a lot of judgment involved, and um, also we tend to want to fix whatever it is. So if you're telling somebody, for example, about your depression, how you feel, and they say, to you, you know what? If you run three times a week and you do yoga and you eat kale and you eat quinoa, you're going to feel so much better because everybody knows better than you, right? So I think that that is a huge part of it too. I think that sometimes you can get beaten down. If you start to talk, then you don't know what you're being met with. So it's really coming up with your own coping skills, like what works for you. Something that's echoed right now in our national conversation about surviving trauma that's in the film is when Craig's dad asks him, why didn't you talk about it? You know, as if everyone thinks that in the moment of crisis, we can communicate. And that's not always an option that's on the table. Maybe years later, like in the instance of Craig and his father, who have seemed to forge a very strong relationship. But at one point, Craig was, boy, he was on the edge for a long time. Absolutely. And people process things differently. And and you're right. It does parallel the national conversation right now. It's like, ah, not to politicize the audacity to say, oh, why wait 36 years? Oh, because it's so easy to have those conversations. It is not, as we know. And when you're talking about fighting for your life, it's up to each individual person to figure out what is going to make it Okay. And the community that, that Desiree is forming with these, you know, these people, and she has like a Facebook page where they can communicate with each other, to have people who really understand is one very important part of it. And another, I think, really important thing is to try to get to people before they get to that edge. And I think that we're talking about a, a major societal change. I mean, talking to kids when they're five you know, and getting them to a place like finding the kids who are isolated, finding the kids who are not having lunch with anybody or who they're not being picked for kickball or whatever, and figuring out who those kids are and helping to integrate them. To people who might say, wow, well, Lisa Klein, she wants to start talking to kids at five years old about suicide. That's radical. But there are people in your film who thought about suicide when they were five years old. That was already there. That was already a part of their worldview. Absolutely. And it isn't just about suicide. It's, it's really, it's a, it's a lot bigger than that. It's about kindness. It's about inclusion. It's about community. So when we're talking about five and six-year-olds, it isn't like, hey, are you thinking about suicide? It isn't that. It's like, hey, who are you having lunch with this week? I mean, there, there's a teacher who's doing that, who, who Friday talks to these kids. 
she teaches third grade. This is one example. I hope there are teachers that every teacher is doing this, which they're not. But um, and 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 really just opening the conversation to are they being included and how are they feeling and all of that. But being afraid to say, hey, are you thinking about suicide when you suspect that somebody is, we need to have that conversation. And one of the really tough questions that Desiree asks her subjects, the people she meets in photographs who are suicide survivors, is she asks them in a very casual way, is this still on the table for you? Is this still an option? And it's tough. And there's, there's one woman in the film who answers, no, since I became a mother, this is off the table. This is not something I think about anymore. But not everybody can say that, as you, as you said. You know, it's, it's a difference in outlook and a difference in perspective that can last a person's lifetime, but it doesn't mean they have to make the ultimate decision. Absolutely. And Kalechi in the film says to Des, I don't want to be thinking about it anymore, but that wouldn't be honest. I do think about it. Uh, One of our our last interviews together, um, she was in a really bad place. And she said to me, if I were at that place right now, I might not be here. But my coping skills have changed. I talk to my mother now. I talk to my friends. They know when to get in touch with it. Like, it's a whole different thing. She's not hiding it anymore. But does she still think about it? Yes, because you can't tell somebody how to think or how to feel. Just like, you know, we, we, we've probably all been guilty of, like what somebody says that they're feeling depressed or they're feeling suicidal. No, no, you're not. You're okay. You're fine. Come on, buck up. No, I think it's okay to say, all right, feeling, you're feeling suicidal. You're thinking about that. Okay, well, that's an option, right? Because it is. But let's think of five other options. What is it? that you're excited about? What is it about life that's good? Like, let's try to focus on how we can do that. Lisa Klein's film, The S Word, will screen in Tucson at the Loft Cinema next Wednesday, October 10th at 7 p.m. A Q&A session with members of Tucson's mental health community will follow the film. Every week in Tucson, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, hosts meetings for people living with mental illness and for their family and caregivers. I joined a NAMI peer group meeting at Hope Incorporated, a community enrichment center that's near Country Club and Speedway, and I asked some of those in attendance to share the methods they rely on to help them cope. My name is Christine. I struggle with depression, but to a lesser degree. I've had suicide attempts in my past, but they're in the past. What I think would really help me is keeping better track of my moods. I keep a journal. I'm kind of writing to get out my thoughts um, and put them on paper, which helps me think about those, but I don't have the ability so much to go back and read them. People have talked about even applications on the phone you can use to track moods. And I think that would be a good thing for me to do, um, keeping better track of moods. Hello, my name is Dea. Around three or four years ago, I got physically ill and then uh, I went to a depression. Uh, I took a lot of prescribed drugs and um, without the drugs, I was a little lost, but through that loss, I found myself and um, I don't believe in drugs. I believe in breath. I believe in listening and talking and getting lost in someone's eyes. And uh, I just 
I found a new way to live. Those are the only techniques that I use, and I use them all the time, 24-7. We're very simple creatures. Just to say, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to make it. I am going to see through this situation and come out better for it. And to me, it's the only way to deal with it. Uh, my name is Dee. I'm 75 years old and I've lived with depression all of my life and I know that I will live with depression for the rest of my life. So something that I realized a long time ago when I was at the bottom, the very bottom, was that I could get as much benefit from exercise, really getting my heart going, sweating and panting. That's how I judge it, sweating and panting. And so I've been doing that, you know, for years and years and years. And I just put that almost up at the top of my list. Well, top of my list is medication because I've always needed medication and I probably always will. Uh, my mind just races. It feels like a million miles an hour sometimes and often with very negative thoughts or fearful thoughts and boy I just try more and more all the time to recognize those things and say now wait D stop I find that like for example in the morning is my very worst time like when I wake up and like about the first or second hour when a lot of all my fears sort of come forward and I have really just lately sort of gotten a pretty good hold on that and just I just say to myself now D come on this is such old stuff just get up get going because now I can count on feeling better if I just take that approach get up make coffee take Susie the dog for a walk and I inevitably feel a lot better yeah so that's another way that I deal with things Those voices came to us from NAMI Southern Arizona, part of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. They offer support, resources, and understanding. You can contact them at namisa.org. When I first heard the title of David Biancouli's latest book, it just didn't make any sense. The Platinum Age of Television from I Love Lucy to The Walking Dead, how TV became terrific. But once I saw the table of contents, it started to become clear. Bian Cooley is a familiar voice to NPR listeners as the TV critic and Friday host of Fresh Air. He found a way to write about his favorite subject in a novel way. From sitcoms to soap operas to westerns and more, Bian Cooley looks at each genre in detail by focusing on the five or six shows that he feels demonstrated the most important evolutionary jumps in storytelling. Well, it goes back to radio. I didn't even, I was yeah. so stupid, I didn't even just start with TV. <laughs> so, and, and I didn't even realize this until I was recording the audio version of the book. By about 10 chapters in, not radio, don't go back to Gunsmoke on radio, but it all connects when you look at this medium as evolution, it comes from a previous medium. Let's take one of these genres and look at it a little more closely, and I'm going to select Chapter 11, which is Single Working Women Sitcoms. Under that heading, you highlight five titles for us. The Mary Tyler Moore Show, mm -hmm. The Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, Murphy Brown, then Sex and the City, and then Girls. 
the idea was to say it was like you know that drawing with the five stages of man yes um well it was like okay what are the five stages in each of these genres it doesn't mean there were no other evolutional points and in fact with the Mary Tyler Moore before that would be all the way back to our Miss Brooks and you would go to that girl and I write about all those things but then I specifically spend more time with what I consider the most important five and you have the Mary Tyler Moore show nobody would argue with that Uh, sex in the city probably nobody would argue with that and girls Uh, Murphy Brown, you know, is just about to come back again. So that makes sense. But Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, that's almost like a missing link. And a lot of people don't even know that show. But I I found it really important in the history. So the key in evolution here, I think, also is an honesty about gender roles, about women in contemporary America, uh, which over the decades that contemporary frame changes. And we do see a big difference between uh, the way Mary Richards behaved and her portrayal as an adult and girls and the struggles to become an adult. You know, with Mary Richards, it was the first major sitcom in which there was a character whose big driving force was not to get a man or to keep a man. It was to focus on a career and relate to her friends and her co-workers. And that was what most male sitcoms set in a workplace were like. And then after that, you get to programs like Sex and the City and Girls, and they are all about the female relationships with one another while men come and go and drive them crazy. You also coined what was to me a new phrase in this with split comms. Yeah, I know. I couldn't come up with anything else, but it's sort of like there are workplace sitcoms where you spend your whole time like at the bar of cheers or there are situation comedies where there there are family sitcoms where you spend all the time at home like Leave it to Beaver. But what about the ones that go half and half? And I finally decided... Uh, let's call those split comms. And for our audience, uh, in the split comms category, David Cooley chooses The Andy Griffith Show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Bob Newhart Show, then Seinfeld and Louie. I think Seinfeld is an interesting choice because as a casual watcher, not a lover of Seinfeld, which has gotten me into many arguments, I'm not fun at cocktail parties, um, that <laughs> That's I didn't... not because of not liking Seinfeld, by the way, <laughs> well, I'm sure. No, go ahead. <laughs> um, I didn't think of Seinfeld as being a sitcom where the workplace environment was really all that important. But then again, Jerry Seinfeld played a stand-up comedian on the show, and you could say that the times when he's standing in front of the brick wall doing his routines is actually a workplace element of that show. And in the early seasons, that was a key structure of that because a lot of Seinfeld in the early years dealt with showing his private life as it built and related to uh, the jokes that he would tell when he was at work. The first stage in the splitcom evolutionary chain that you present is the Andy Griffith show, which is very sly in a way because the workplace elements and Andy's family life were so blended together, it's really hard in that case to tell where one ends and the other begins. That's a great observation. And and it's true. It's so gentle. And the members of his family came in and out of 
you know, his sheriff's office all the time anyway. I think Opie was at his dad's workplace as much as dad was home. But uh, it was a beautiful melding of the two. And just like with the Dick Van Dyke show, when the character came home from the TV show, he had a full, interesting life uh, with, you know, Rob Petrie's wife, Laura. But when he went to work, he had an equally interesting life uh, relating to his boss and trying to come up with comedy and dealing with the other comedy writers. So that was two sitcoms in one. Um, and I, I think that's because Carl Reiner, who created the show, was not only writing what he knew, but he was a new TV writer other than your show of shows, which was sketch stuff. So in writing his first sitcom, he didn't know that he was breaking rules by making it that complicated. Tell me about interviewing Carl Reiner for the book. There are so many great performers and writers that you interviewed. Carl Reiner is such an important guy when we talk about TV evolution. You know, there's two parts of the book. There's my silly let's play Darwin kind of evolutionary TV stuff where I'm a critic and and a writer, and that's part of it. The other part was to go through all of TV history and say, who are the people whose work impressed me the most, influenced TV the most, and are still alive for me to talk to. And for the entire history of TV, uh, I, I spoke to about 30 of them. That's my favorite part of the book. And in the earliest part, you get Carl Reiner, you get Mel Brooks, you get Norman Lear, uh, people that were there when television began. And it was just great because all three of those men have astoundingly sharp memories for their age, for any age. I don't remember what they remember in terms of the years that we were both on the planet. So it's pretty amazing. An interesting category is crime shows, because there are five stages of evolution. Start with Hill Street Blues, certainly not the first crime show on TV, but a major... Um, a major reassessment and a major reimagining of what a cop show could be. And from Hill Street Blues, you go to NYPD Blue. Then we have The Sopranos, not as much about cops as you might think, but definitely a crime show. Then The Shield, and then Breaking Bad. And that's the one that really surprised me because mm -hmm. I think I would have expected a show like The Wire or something, not Breaking Bad, which once again wasn't really about cops. It was truly about crime. Right, and I do, I do write briefly about The Wire, and I loved The Wire, but that evolutionary spot uh, with crime, it begins with Hill Street Blues because all of crime shows on TV are either before or after Hill Street Blues. Hill Street is the one that brought the serialized soap opera approach to it and killed people off suddenly, regularly, and, and showed its heroes as something less than always heroic. And so from there, you go to NYPD Blue, where you, you start with a very flawed protagonist in, in Sipowitz, and he ends up being a better, more noble character by the end. And then by The Sopranos, you're not paying attention to the, to the order side of, you know, law and order. You're, you're looking at the criminals. And in The Shield, you have a cop who basically is a criminal, and then Breaking Bad, it's an evolution in itself from a character who begins law-abiding and ends up being a ruthless bad guy. Part of that evolution is the acceptance of having a protagonist who is less than noble, and it just 
keeps on accelerating in each one of those examples. Okay, so a couple more I want to hit real fast before we run out of time. Okay. <laughs> Soap operas is a really interesting one too, David, because here you include a show that I would not think of as a soap opera. I would think of it as a soap opera satire, and that's Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. But here it is, number two, sandwiched in between Peyton Place and Dallas in the evolution of nighttime soap operas. Well, it understood soap operas perfectly. And uh, the appeal that Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman had is the exact same appeal that daytime soaps like General Hospital and One Life to Live would have and which Peyton Glace and Dallas tapped into. You know, it had villains, it had heroes, it had continuing stories, it had sudden deaths, it had outrageous romances. You know, uh, it really knew what it was doing and it appealed to people. It, It sort of went viral as a television program, not from a regular network, but an individual syndicated group of stations that just said, we want to show this, we want to show this. And and it's important for that reason as well. In writing this book, David, what did you have to stop yourself from doing? What rabbit holes did you have to keep yourself from going down in order to get the book finished? My editor said, stop talking to people. Because every interview that I got made it easier to get the next interview. It's sort of like once you say, well, I talked to Mel Brooks, I talked to Larry David, I talked to, you know, Stephen Bochco. They say, well, okay, then, then you know. But I hope that what's there is enough of an argument and, and interesting enough to sort of make the point that television right now is better than ever. I'm not in a Clint Eastwood kind of get off my lawn, everything was better in black and white days. I've been a TV critic forever, but it's better now than it ever has been. David Biancooli's website is called tvworthwatching.com. Amy Schumer, Tom Smothers, and Gary Shandling are among the other interviews found in the book. The Platinum Age of Television from I Love Lucy to The Walking Dead, How TV Became Terrific, is from Anchor Books. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can find much more on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.